The following message was recorded Sunday, February 25, 2024. Pastor Ritt continues his series in the book of Acts and covers chapter 10 verses 1 through 17. Pastor Ritt shares on the difference between how the Roman centurion Cornelius and the apostle Peter respond to God's call. How do you respond to God when he calls you to do something, especially when that something is uncomfortable? And now, here's Pastor Ritt. We're in Acts this morning. What chapter are we in? Ten. And what's it all about? You've been reading ahead, haven't you? The salvation of who? The plumber. The Roman, yeah. Cornelius. What do you know about Cornelius? Tell me what you know about Cornelius. He's a centurion. What does that mean? He was a, he was a leader over a hundred men, captain over a hundred, centurion. It meant he had to be courageous in battle, proven, tested, and he was a man of honor. What else do you know about him? He was a, he was a Roman centurion. Verses 1 and 2. Let's read it together, and then we'll go over what we can learn about this man quickly. Chapter 10, 1 and 2. There was a certain man of Caesarea called Cornelius, a centurion, what, what was called the Italian of the what was called the Italian regiment, a devout man, one who feared God with his household, all his household, and he gave alms generously to the people, and he prayed to God always. So, what do we know about him? He's a believer. A believer in what? What God? Well, you know, when we think so. Now, obviously, he was rejecting the Roman and Greek philosophy, religious philosophies, which was a multitude of God, pluralism, right? Polytheism, a multitude of God. So he rejected that. He was a pragmatist, I think. He was looking at the situation. This can't possibly be true. There must be a truth that can be found. There must be a creator. There must be a purpose and a reason. And so he was looking for that, and he became what is called a proselyte of the gate. What does that mean? You know? A proselyte of the gate was a Gentile who was uncircumcised, who was embracing faith in the God of Israel, but he couldn't be joined to Israel. He was still a Gentile, still outside of the commonwealth of Israel. Couldn't be co-heir with the Jews or Israel, but he, he was in relationship with the God of Israel through a mediatorial relationship through the nation of Israel. Um, I come from a faith where I had to go to a man as a mediator between me and God for the forgiveness of my sins. So in a sense, it was similar to that kind of a relationship. The Gentiles were looking for a relationship to the one true God of Israel through a mediatorial relationship with the nation of Israel. Is that possible? Is that the way it works? No. Can you go to Jesus or go to God through any particular man? No. Can you go to him through his mother, Mary? No, no. How do you go to Jesus? Directly we approach the throne of grace boldly, confidently. Now, not arrogantly, but, but confidently knowing our Father's love for us in Christ Jesus. And now we can go before the throne in our time of need or our time of help and know that we will get that help that we look for, that grace that God wants to give. Is that not true? So he was a proselyte at the gate. He was an uncircumcised Gentile who was trying to find the true God, who God really is, through a relationship with the nation of Israel. What else does it say about him? A centurion, leader of a hundred men. He was of the Italian regiment. What was a regiment? 
a regiment, a, a cohort was the, was the uh, equivalent of the, uh, how many men? 600. So he was one of six leaders in a group of 600 men. He was a devout man. That means he was very pious, very godly. It also tells us that he was a God-fearer, proselyte of the gate. And he gave alms generously. What does that mean? <laughs> well, it's not specifically talking about a tithe. It's even above and beyond. What, what is it? He gave generously to the poor. He had a real heart for those in need, and he would give generously to them. And the, and the alms were always above and beyond what the tithe was. But also, what do we know about him? He's not just a, a generous giver. He was a man of prayer. prayer. And how often did he pray? Constantly, it says, continually. The man was never out of an awareness of God in his, in his presence. Like uh, my friend Reptevia. You know Reptevia? You like the movie Fiddler on the Roof? Yeah, yeah. I always watch it during the Passover time of year. I wear a little bit ahead. We watched it a couple weeks ago uh, once again. But, but Reptevia was a man who was constantly aware of God's presence in his life. And the communication to God was constant, wasn't it? That was this man, Cornelius. Constantly in communication with God. And that's what prayer is. Prayer is we study the word of God. We know the will of God. We see and discern God's will and purposes. And then we say, oh, God, help me. Help me to be. Help me to become you in this world, right? But as you read the word of God, it should drive you to prayer. And he was in prayer continually. And are you consciously aware of God's presence in your life? Talking to him, communicating with him every day, daily, throughout the day. That's how this man was. In chapter uh, 10 and verse 22, it tells us he was a just man. What does that mean? He was, he was fair. He was righteous. When we talk about holiness and righteousness, our holiness speaks of a relationship to God through Jesus Christ. It means that you are the hagios of God. What does that word mean, hagios? We interpret that to the English word saints. Saints. The word saints that you read in your Bible is the Greek word hagios, most holy. Most holy gale. Hmm. Gale storm. <laughs> Why are you most holy? Because of Christ in you. The Holy Spirit is in you. You're most holy. So when we talk about our holiness, it's simply because we're, we're the dwelling place of the holiness of God, the Holy Spirit. When we talk about our righteousness, now that's another matter. What is that speaking of? My relationship to God? my relationship to one another. I'm right with God. As if, I have Holy, if I have the Holy Spirit within me, I have God's righteousness, God's mercy, God's grace, God's compassion. I, I'm living life, allowing Christ to live his life through me. But now, in my relationship to one another, it should be righteous. It should be just. I should be treating you as I would want to be treated. I should be treating you fairly and justly. When we look at the law of God in the Old Testament, we have the dietary laws. We'll be talking about that in a minute. Uh, the dietary laws, the moral law, the social laws, the, the whole Levitical sacrificial system, all of it was a sign and type, wasn't it? Symbol, sign, type of which Christ would become the reality. But all of it was beneficial for the individual, wasn't it? The dietary laws, are they beneficial? Yes. Yeah, they are. They really are. You live a healthy life or have a healthy standard of life if you live to the biblical diet. But that's changed, right? Uh, but very soon, when the millennial reign of Jesus Christ, we know it's going to be agricultural again, and everything we eat will be organic. Organic. Isn't that be wonderful? Yeah. But the moral law of God, if you follow the moral law of God, will that be good or bad? 
Good or bad for the society? Oh, very good, very good. The social laws of God and the way we treat one another, if someone does anything unjustly and how you're to make retribution, would that be good or bad? Of course it would be good. Of course it would be good. So all of these things that we see are for our benefit. But he was a righteous man in the way in which he dealt with other people. He was blameless. He was innocent. He always did the right thing because it was the right thing even to his own hurt. As the Bible would say, blessed is the man, blessed is the woman who keeps her vows even unto their own hurt. Isn't it true? But many people don't want to do that. They like to take the convenient way out. They don't want to be uncomfortable in any way. Hmm? But we should be very mindful about the way we treat each other. He was such a just man. And because of that, how do you think his men looked at him? They were underneath his authority. With favor. Yeah. And they obeyed him. They obeyed him not out of compulsion. They obeyed him because he was such a good leader. Hmm. Any of you manage people? Any of you? No? Nobody manages people in this room? Yeah, you manage people. Okay. I was, I was a manager, uh, first a, a foreman and then a manager for general director for a number of years. And I always made sure that I looked out for the interest of my employees. If I had a bad employee, I would try to reform them. If I couldn't reform them, I'd have to move them on. You know, and there's ways of doing that. But if I had good employees who worked hard, my job was to promote them on, even though I would suffer for it. Because now I'd have to go through that training all over again. But you see, when you really are looking out for the benefit of others, the interest of others, then you don't have to worry when you're absent. They're going to follow your orders. They're going to do what is best in the best interest of the team or the group or the, whatever it might be. I used to hold a staff meeting on Wednesday, every Wednesday morning, and I'd go around to all of the people that reported to me, and I'd ask them what I could do to make their job better. And I'd write it down. And then the following week, I'd begin the meeting by reporting on what I did to the things that, I, that they shared with me could make their job better. You ever hear of anybody doing that as a manager? Probably not. Very few, very few. But that's the way I would have the meeting. First few times I did that, they were shocked. But I realized that they realized that I was looking out for their best interest, and then when... Rit, the manager, wasn't around. They were doing their job as well as if I was there. As we are, as Christians, supposed to be conducting ourselves in such a godly manner that whether absent or in the presence of the Lord, we're to do it everything that we do as unto the Lord. Is that not true? Do you operate that way? Because we have a good leader. We have a good manager. And he's always constantly looking out for our best interests, isn't he? Yeah. It was a good reputation, chapter 10, verse 22. What does that mean, good reputation? Anybody know the Greek word there? What's the Greek word in, what is it? Martoreo comes from the root word martus, which means witness. Isn't that interesting? He was a wonderful witness of what it means to be a godly man, a righteous man, a pious man, a man of prayer, a generous man. Wow. And he wasn't even saved yet. Isn't that amazing? You ever come across some people like that? They're just really wonderful people when you look at them in comparison to other people. He was a good man. Do good men go to heaven? No, no. Saved men go to heaven. And there can be a multitude of people far better in their conduct, in their character, in their life than you and I are, but that doesn't guarantee us a place in heaven, does it? Good master, what must I do to inherit the kingdom of God? And what was Jesus' response? Why do you call me good? 
there's no one good but God. And Jesus was indicating, you're right, I am a good master, but also I want you to understand that I'm God, and there's no one good but God, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Is that true? So we can, we can compare ourselves to other men, but that doesn't mean we have an entrance into heaven except through faith, faith in Jesus Christ alone, by believing. The word believing, completely entrusting your life to but that's where God is going to bring this man. But tell me, how did the Jews at this time feel about Gentiles? Feel about this man, Cornelius? They didn't like him. Why didn't they like him? There's several reasons why they didn't like this man. He's a Roman, first of all. Roman were occupiers. Are Israelis occupiers? Make sure you understand that, because it's constantly what we hear. They're occupying, occupying, occupying Judea. Are you out of your mind? They're the original inhabitants, right? They're the indigenous people of that area. Yeah. What else? He's what? Say it again. I said he's a Gentile. He's a Gentile. Okay, he's a Gentile. He's a Roman occupier. What else? Uncircumcised. He's uncircumcised. There were just some Gentiles who actually went through the rite of circumcision. Ouch. You know, I wouldn't want to do that. Not, not as an adult, that's for sure. What, what else? They thought they were barbars. That's how they referred to Gentiles. Barbars. What's a barbar? Barbarian. A barbarian. A dog. They thought they were dogs. You know what the, uh, the Talmud is? What's the Talmud? No, that's the Torah. Torah. The Talmud, okay, is a codified law. Now, they would take the Talmud and they, they'd reduce it to the Mishnah. The Mishnah would be the oral traditions plus rabbinical teachings or commentary on the oral traditions on the Talmud and the Torah. But let me tell you what it says there about Gentiles. In the Mishnah, it says uh, the Jewish oral law plus the rabbinical commentary. Why are the Goyem, uh, that's a Gentile, Goyem, why are the Goyem unclean? Why? It answers, because they eat abominable things. They eat those things that are forbidden in the dietary laws that are given in Leviticus. But it also says, because they weren't at Mount Sinai. For the serpent entered Eve, he infused her with uncleanness. But the Jews were cleansed at Mount Sinai, and the Goyim were not cleansed. They were not at Mount Sinai. That's when God gave the law. And told them that through the law, they believed that through the works of the law, they would be cleansed. Is that possible? No, no. But here's what they believed, you see. They believed that all these unclean Gentiles were dead while they yet lived. They were walking corpse because they were already dead. Is that true? Jesus declared someone dead while they yet lived. Who was that? The Pharisees. Those religionists who believed that they could achieve acceptance before God by their works. And that's impossible. And so Jesus said they are dead while they yet live. But the, Gen but the Jews felt that the Gentiles were a walking corpse. They were dead while they yet lived because they were unclean. And they would always be unclean. And they could never approach God or be in God's presence. That's how they felt about them. Isn't that interesting? So as we get into chapter 10... And we said the first uh, portion of Acts from 10 to 12 dealt with what personality? Chapters 1 through 12 dealt with what personality? Peter, Peter. Chapter 13 to the end of Acts deals with Paul, Paul. Okay, so we're dealing with Peter. 
But in chapter 8, we saw that somebody got saved in chapter 8. And it may very well be the first Gentile, because a lot of the commentaries I read say that Cornelius is the first Gentile to receive the gospel. Well, we can't be absolutely certain of that, because someone got saved in chapter 8, and we don't know whether he was part Jew or he was a Gentile. Who was that? Ethiopian eunuch. And how did that transpire? How did that take place? Philip, lover of horses, right? Yeah, and, and, and the Ethiopian eunuch, he was from what line of Noah? Ham, Ham. Chapter 9, Paul gets saved. Miraculous conversion of Paul. And what line of Noah was he from? Shem. Okay, so what else do we know about Cornelius? He was from Japheth. Japheth. Ham, Shem, and Japheth. God so loved the world, right? These are the descendants of Noah, came off the, the, the ark. But with regard to Philip, look at the end of chapter 8 for a minute. There's a question that arose as I was studying this. And it says, now when they come out of the water after he baptized this Ethiopian eunuch who came to faith, the Spirit of the Lord caught Philip up. Harpazo, right? What's that word? Harpazo? raptured him, snatched him away. Now, he, he got caught up by the Spirit, and the Spirit laid in him where? He found him at Azotus. And passing through, he preached in all of the cities till he came to Caesarea. Now, in chapter 10, how long do you think it's been since the resurrection of Christ? Anybody have an idea? It's been about 10 years. It's about a decade since the resurrection of Christ. It's quite a while. Now, we know that Philip, Philip landed in where? Caesarea, right? So go with me to chapter 20 for a minute. 21. Acts 21. This is uh, Paul's on his journeys, uh, journeying to Jerusalem. In verse 7, it says, And when they had finished our voyage from Tyre, we came to Ptolemus and greeted the brethren, stayed with them one day. And the next day, we, who were Paul's companions, departed and came to Caesarea. Caesarea, same place. And entered the house of the... Oh, wow, wait a minute. So Philip has been there all this time. Since the salvation of the Ethiopian eunuch when he was transferred by the Holy Spirit to Azotus and then made his way to Caesarea as he was witnessing, he's been an evangelist and a witness for the gospel of Jesus Christ ever since in Caesarea. And where is Cornelius from? Caesarea. So why in the world hasn't God just told Cornelius to fetch Philip and have Philip come and tell him the gospel because Philip's an evangelist? I'm sorry? Because he's got to do work in Peter's heart, right? The work has already been done in Philip's heart. And what work was that? Not to be prejudiced against anyone for any reason. We, we found Philip involved in a revival that was taking place in what portion of Israel where the, a good Jew would never go? Samaria. So he had already shed all of that prejudice against the Samaritans. And then Cornelius was, I mean, uh, Philip was sent to witness to this Ethiopian eunuch. Oh, my. A eunuch? Hmm. 
You know, we have a lot of people that are confused about their gender, but they need to be witnessed to, don't they? Don't they? And, and Philip didn't hesitate to share the truth of God's love to this man. Now, I, I don't know that he was a full Gentile. I think he was part Jew because of the influence that had taken place with the queen of Ethiopia, who was the queen of Sheba, who came centuries before to visit Solomon. And Solomon gave her a gift to go home with. What was that? A baby, a baby. And he was brought up in the belief of the Jews or the religion of the Jews. And so I think that had taken place. And so he may have been part Jew, as far as we know. Cornelius may be the first Gentile, but it's interesting that, that the Holy Spirit is going to have Cornelius send his servants 33 miles to, to uh, Joppa, which is present-day Jaffa, to get Peter to come back to him. It's going to take four days for all this to transpire. When he could have just gone down the street a little while and got a hold of Philip and had Philip share the gospel with him. But that prejudice that discriminatory attitude, that holier-than-thou attitude wasn't existing in Philip as it existed in so many of the religious Jews that exist in so many today. We can even attain that attitude, can't we? After some time of walking with the Lord, somehow thinking you're better than anybody else? Billy Graham said after all his years of preaching and evangelizing and all the work that God did through him through the Holy Spirit, and at the end of all of that, Billy Graham still needs the same saving grace as any heroin addict on the streets of New York. Isn't that true? Absolutely true. It's not by works. No. And so God needed to do a work not just in Cornelius. He needed to do work in Philip. Oh, no, excuse me. He needed to work in Peter, the same work he had already accomplished in Philip. And the question this morning is, what work does God want to do in me? What work does God want to do in you? Sometimes I can have some very unhealthy attitudes towards other people. I know that you probably don't have to deal with that, but I have to. And I have to God, ask God to change my heart. For God is no respecter of persons, is he? Nor does he show pers- uh, preference, does he? No. Well, let's look at the text here. There was a certain man, Cornelius, of the centurion of what was called the Italian regiment, a devout man, one who feared God with his whole household. He he was such a godly man, such a wonderful man, such a loving man, such a compassionate man, such a good leader that his entire household was following him. Mm. Man, that's so important that we really represent Jesus in all of his loving attributes, truth, and love to our family so that they'll follow you know the statistics, you know, if, if, you, if you emphasize child evangelism and you're the type of church that is busing children from all over the neighborhood, the, the city into your church to try to evangelize the children, what's the likelihood you're going to bring the rest of the family in? It's a single-digit percentage, very small, very small. So if you target the women in the community and you have a wonderful women's group, and oh, by the way, there's been a wonderful women's study taking place, very excited about what's going on and how you sisters are gathering together to pray for one another and encourage one another. But if you target the women in the community, what's the likelihood that the whole family is going to come to church? It's not high. It's about 15, 16, 17 percent, something over there. If the church targets the men of the community and draws the men to come to faith in Jesus Christ, what is the likelihood the entire family is going to come to church? 
It's in the 70 percentile. It's very high. Why? Why is that? It's a God-ordained order, isn't it? The man is the patriarchal head of the family, and God will bless and work through that head, that patriarchal head. I'm sorry. <laughs> Forget that. Okay. He and his entire household, and he gave alms generously to the people, and he prayed to God always. And it was about the ninth hour of the day. What hour is that? Three o'clock in the afternoon. Isn't that interesting? And what, what, what's significant about three o'clock in the afternoon? It's an hour of prayer. So here, here he is in an hour of prayer, and, and the Jews would pray at least no less than three times a day. Three times a day. Remember the Daniel, the book of Daniel? How they accused Daniel because he knew exactly what he would do three times each and every day. He would pray to his God. Hmm? And so here, isn't it interesting that at the time of prayer where he's desiring to communicate with God, God meets him there and gives him a revelation, enlightenment. We, we should all be praying at least three times a day. And then go into God's word after you pray and be amazed at the revelation, the enlightenment, the understanding that God will give you from his word. Don't you meet him all the time this way? Don't you hear from God all the time? Now, now Cornelius didn't have the luxury of having the Bible like we do. But we have a wonderful opportunity of meeting God in a very supernatural way to give knowledge and wisdom and enlightenment every single day. I was sharing with Gail, it was God who, who led me to believe. Why, why was it, to ask the question, why was it Philip was in Caesarea? I didn't read that in any commentary. I didn't hear any other teacher say that. But in my study of the word of God, God said, don't you find it interesting that I didn't have him go get Philip? I do, Lord. Why didn't they go get Philip? Well, because I need to do a work in Peter, just like I need to do a work in you, buddy. <laughs> if it's always for somebody else that you're going to the Word, that's a problem. You've got to go to the Word to let the Word read you and change you. I need to be changed. 43 years walking with Jesus, but I still need to be changed. Do you? Yeah. yeah, wise men and women, they know that. It's called humility, you see. You know the difference, uh, I think uh, your, your teacher last week talked a lot about humility. Paul writes in Philippians that humility brings unity. Unity only comes through humility. Paul wrote that in Philippians. Now, what's the opposite of humility? Pride, pride, pride. So in humility, we never try to encourage people to make change. We just humbly keep our mouth shut? No. Humility corrects. It doesn't criticize. Pride is constantly criticizing. It's critical. You, 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 you. Humility gently and lovingly brings correction. Don't we need to bring correction? I am so thankful for the correction that God brings me through Gail. And I hope she's thankful for the correction that God brings her through me. Hmm? Isn't that true? Now, pride will never receive correction. Humility welcomes correction. You see the difference? Huh? 
if you're, if you're really a humble person, then you're open to correction. We all want to be corrected, right, Tom? I don't want to be making mistakes. I want to do the right thing. And if I'm blind to what I'm doing, I need somebody to help me see that, don't I? And that's, listen, that's what we're here for, especially, especially in marriage. We're so different from one another, and there's so much loving correction that takes place as the two of us are becoming one. But if you're prideful, you won't receive that correction. You'll get mad. And then you repay criticism with. You repay criticism with criticism, right? Accusation for accusation. Hmm. Should never be. You understand the difference? And when you're humble, it, 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 it allows you to be open to correction. And people know that. Curtis was certainly that kind of a man, wasn't he? In his entire house, ninth hour of prayer. And he saw clearly in a vision an angel of God coming and standing and saying to him, Cornelius. And when he observed him, he was afraid. More, more uh, appropriately in the interpretation of this text, it would be alarmed. That he was alarmed. I don't think there was much that he was afraid of. Do you? No, no. He's a battle-hardened man. He was a soldier, a warrior. But he was alarmed at this visitation from the angel. And he said, what is it? Kurios. What does that mean? Supreme in heaven and earth. Now, he made a mistake here. Was this angel supreme in heaven and earth? No. Because no. it was an angel of the Lord, not the angel of the Lord, right? It wasn't God himself. It was, a, it was an angel of God, but it wasn't the angel of God, meaning Jesus Christ. And he said, who are you, Lord? What would you have me to do? That's what Paul said. And he said to him, your prayers and your alms have come up as a memorial before God. God was mindful of everything that this man did. Last week, uh, not last week, two weeks ago, when we ended the service, I talked a little bit about works, right? James says, you say you have faith, I'll show you my... For works without faith is dead, right? Workless faith is worthless faith. But it tells us in James that faith without works is dead. It tells us in Revelation 14, 13, that the works you do will follow you. That the works that they have done, the righteous will follow them into the kingdom. And that you were saved by God to be the poema, what? Workmanship of God created for good works. And God's mindful of those works. Isn't this amazing that God is keeping, this word memorial is more appropriate than a record. God's keeping a record of Cornelius' prayers, his generous giving, his open heart, all the righteous deeds he's allowing to be done through his life. Wow. Do you understand the implication here? You know the parable that Jesus gave of the miners? You remember that? He gave to one, one. He gave to another, five. And he gave to another, ten. And then he came back, the master of the house, and he asked an accounting of what they did with the gifts that he had given them. Now, he's not talking about money there, is he? What's he talking about? Your life and all that he has given you. Any, any talents or gifts or your personality, your, your intellect, all of that is a gift from God. And so when he came back, he gave an accounting, and he said, now what did you do with the one that I gave you? And what did the man said? I know you were austere. You're hard man. To, is Jesus a hard man? No. 
Your law is not burdensome. It is my delight and joy of living. Who said that? David. Most people think that God's law is a burden. No, it's not a burden. It's a joy. I know you're a hard man, and I buried the one you gave me and did nothing with it. Buried who he was. Buried his talents. Buried his ability. Lived for himself. Completely self-centered. But then he went to the one who fed five. And what did he do with it? He invested it and produced five more. <coughs> Doubled the fun. Doubled the interest, right? The one with ten, he had ten more. And what did the Lord say to him? Well done, good and faithful servant. Enter into the kingdom. Now you will be responsible for five cities. And you with ten. You see, listen to me now. What Jesus was teaching is that the responsibilities and the privileges that we're going to be given in the next life, in the kingdom, are all conditional upon how much we have given of what he has given us in this life. Do you understand that? Too much is given, much is required, right? And so God was keeping a record of what this man Cornelius was doing. And then like, he was going to reward him for the work that he was allowing God himself to do through him. Now, I think God was doing the work long before Cornelius was even aware of it. Do you think God was at work in your life long before you became aware of it? Yeah. When did he start working in your life? Before you were even born, he knew you, right? And he called you to be his own. So what, what did your born-again experience really do? Opened your eyes to what? To God, okay, but more than that, what were we going to say, Roger? Confirm, Confirm what? Okay, you're a sinner, we know that. <laughs> but, but your born-again experience confirmed what? God's presence and choice in your life. I love the way Charles Spurgeon, the Prince of Preachers, shares it. He says that when you walk into the kingdom on the arch, going into the kingdom of God, what's it going to say? For whosoever will call upon the Lord Jesus Christ will be saved. And then you walk in and I say, oh, by the way, turn around and look. And what does it say on that side? We have not chosen me, but I have chosen you before the foundations of the world that ever come into existence. When I was sitting and contemplating my salvation, and why me, Lord? And then realizing my born again experience only made me aware of the fact that God chose me even before I was even born. Because I began to think back on how many times God was at work in my life and I wasn't aware of it. But he was. It was clear. I don't know how many times I should have been dead in an automobile accident or some crazy thing I was doing. My family all would take bets. I'd end up in the penitentiary. Penn U, not the university. <laughs> no, but as I, as I thought back on it and I could see God's hand, and it was only after my salvation they brought these things to my awareness. And then even as a little child, I remember times and where I was giving my heart and hearing about Jesus and inviting him into my heart and realizing God was at work even when I was a child. But I didn't come to faith until I was 30 years old. Can you give that testimony? Yes. It's amazing. I think that's true of Cornelius, my friend here. Yes, your prayers and your alms have come up as a memorial before God, as a record. Now send men to Joppa and send for Simon, whose name is Peter. And he's lodging with Simon a tanner, whose house is by the sea. He will tell you, what you must do. 
What's indicative of that? Just you gotta speculate now. What's indicative of that? You know? All right, in uh, the end of Deuteronomy, the end and uh, beginning of Joshua, God tells Yeshua six times, six times he tells him something. What did he tell him? He said, What? No, no, no. Joshua. Joshua. Six times he told Moses is gone. Joshua's leading Israel now. Six times he tells him something. Be of strong and of good courage. Do not be dismayed, for I am with you. Hey, Joshua, be strong and of good courage. Do not be dismayed, for I am with you. Yo, Joshua, <laughs> be strong. Be of good courage, for I am with you. Joshua, let me tell you again, okay? Be strong. Do not be dismayed. Be of good courage. I'm with you. Joshua, how many times do you have to tell him? Six times. Indicative of the fact that he was afraid. He was coming apart. He was dismayed. I don't know if I can do this. Yes, you can, Joshua. Because if you're not doing it, I'm going to do it through you. Isn't that wonderful? There's nothing, absolutely nothing that God will ever call you to that he won't equip you to do the same. Do you understand that? Now, if you decide it's your agenda, well, that's another matter. But what he's called you to do, and you know it's clearly God's will, he's going to empower you to do that. Give you all the ability you need. Give you all of the provision, right? So indicative of that, we read that go to seek out Simon, her surname is Peter. He's living right now temporarily with Simon the Tanner in Joppa. Seek him out and he will tell you what to do. So indicative of that, what was Cornelius' prayer? Have you ever been taught to think critically? <laughs> you got to think when you read the Bible. Because you got listen, with so many times with so revelatory is not what you read, it's what you realize isn't being said. Do you understand? And so Cornelius was obviously asking the question, Lord, what, what do you want from me? What do you want in my life? What is my purpose, Lord? And that's a good place to start, isn't it? Asking God what his purpose is for your life. What is your calling? The gifts and the talents he's given you, your personality, your temperament, all of those things God has given you, your intellect, your, all of that. All for a specific purpose that God has in the way in which he wants to use you. I wish we had the rest of the history of Cornelius' life, but I can't wait to ask him when I get to heaven how it was it that God used you. But go see Simon, and he'll tell you what you did do. And when the angels had spoke to him, he departed. Cornelius called two of his household servants, devout soldiers from among those who waited upon him continually. And so when he explained all these things to them, this word explained, you know what that is? When we go through the scriptures, you can eisegesis or you can... That's what it is. He, he gave an ex, exegetical explanation of everything that the angel had done. And that's what we're going to do, is let the text speak for itself. We give an explanation of the text, unfolding the text, explaining the text, exegesis. But today there's eisegesis, exegesis, and narcissus. What is that? We, we, all you do is read yourself into the text. It's all about you. <laughs> It's crazy. 
that's true. But then he, he did an exegetical study here on everything that had taken place. He explained everything thoroughly, and he sent men to Joppa. Now, he was absolutely convinced, we'll see later on, that these men were going to do what they were sent out to do. They were going to accomplish the task, and Peter was going to come back. Because when Peter shows up, Cornelius has his entire house, all of his friends, most of the community there waiting just to hear what Peter has to say. He's so convinced that God's going to answer this prayer. God's going to do exactly what he said he will do. Do you believe that? Why do so many doubt the word of God? Do you think God's going to do exactly what he said he's going to do? Absolutely true. Yeah. I'm very excited about what's going to happen very soon. I think 2024 is going to be a very, very exciting year for the church, for the body of Christ. Not for the world, not for the nation. Oh, troublesome signs there, aren't there? A time of trouble such as never been before, nor will ever be again, Jesus said. Oh, but I'm not looking for that at all. I'm looking for the hope and the promise that he gave me in his word, that he will accomplish all that he has set out to do. Oh, he caught up Philip, but you know what? He's going to catch you and, he, yeah, you and I up, isn't he? Harpazo. One day, maybe very soon, could possibly be this afternoon. Keep your eyes on Israel. The next day, all right, so immediately he sent them out. What time was this? Day one? Three in the afternoon. So he sent them out, but it's how many miles did I say it was? 33 miles. So how long do you think it's going to take them? Two days. They're going to start out that afternoon, but they won't get there until the morning of the following day. So it's going to take a day and a half for them to get there. The next day, they went on their journey and drew near the city. Now, Peter went up on the housetop to pray. Peter was a man of prayer as well, right? And what time was it? The sixth hour? What time was it? High noon. What happens at high noon? Well, for Peter, you know, God wanted to talk to him, but somebody else was talking to him, too. Who was talking to him? His stomach, thank you. <laughs> His stomach was talking to him. Look at the text. <laughs> the next day, as they went on their journey, they drew near the city. Peter went up to the housetop to pray. And, and the house of the roof, the housetop of the roof was also a place where they would uh, occupy. They would be up there in the coolness in the morning and the coolness in the evening. I don't know why it's up there in the noontime. It's pretty hot up there then. And then he became very what? Then he wanted to? Yeah, see, his stomach was talking to him. Like some of you this morning, maybe? Hmm? But while they made ready, who was making ready? Well, the people downstairs. Well, why was, why was he not making ready? You know, I, I always find it very interesting when I'm with a group of pastors and, and somebody's preparing a lunch or a breakfast or a dinner or something needs to be done, and, and it always amazes me the different dispositions or character traits of these guys. Some will sit there and let everybody else do all the work like they, they're the servants. And then others, others are just will serve everybody. I think of my friend who Darren knows very well, Pastor Tony Fasion. He is he's just an extraordinary servant of God. There's nothing he won't do if anybody is in need or when we gather together as a group. Is that true of you? Do you get your hands dirty? No hesitation in diving in and doing the work? I think, I think there's a correction that had to be made in Peter's life, too, about this. Why are you on the top of the roof at the hottest part of the day and everybody else is downstairs making your lunch and your stomach's growling. Shouldn't you be helping them? Yes, no? He was praying. He said he was in a trance. 
probably like some of you this morning. <laughs> Gail catches me quite often in my chair. And she says, what are you doing? I say, I'm on pastoral meditation. If you're slothful and lazy, admit it. And ask God to change you. No, seriously. Ask, you know, if you're the type of person that just watches everybody else do the work, you know, that's not a very admirable character quality. Be industrious. Be a worker. Be willing to help. Dive in. Remember our church first started and I was working GE full time and, and we had a, a little church up in uh, Taylor's and, and uh, these young guys would come on Saturday morning. I've been doing a Saturday morning study with men since 1991. Long time. But at that time it was a, a bunch of young men, a group of young men and there was lots to be done in this little facility and we had to get it ready every week for the Sunday and tear everything down. You know, you know how that goes. And, and these fellows on Saturday morning would follow me around as I'm doing everything. Cleaning the bathroom, cleaning the toilet, making sure the paper towels are there, sweeping the floor. And they're, they're following me around, they're talking to me the whole time, asking me questions, you know. And I'm working, I'm working away. And I go home and I tell Roberta, I said, boy, I hope these guys catch on fast. You know, you're supposed to, uh, ministry is caught and it's not taught. I said, but if these guys don't catch on quickly, I'm killing myself. You know? <laughs> but it was true. They walk around, just... <laughs> And wouldn't lift a finger to help me. But then eventually they caught on. They said, gee, why should we let this guy do all the work? Right? Don't be that type of person. It's not admirable, is it? No, no. No. But anyway, nonetheless, all right. So Peter's in the trance now. It's about the sixth hour, it's noon. He was hungry. He wanted to eat. But while they made ready, he fell into a trance and he saw heaven open and an object like a great sheet bound at the four corners descending to him and led down to the earth. In it were all kinds of four-footed animals of the earth, wild beasts, creeping things, birds of the air. And a voice came to him saying, Peter, arise, kill and eat. Hmm. Yes, Lord. Is that what he said? No. Not so, Lord? For I've never eaten anything common or unclean. You know, this is the third time that Peter said no to the Lord. It's, it's not a good thing to call him Lord and then say, no, no. You know. One thing I taught my son when I used to Instruct the children upstairs. If someone said no, I'd say, you don't tell daddy no. You don't tell Pastor Rick no. Isn't that supposed to be if you're in authority? Right? You don't tell Jesus no. In Matthew, Peter told Jesus no. Jesus explained to them exactly what was going to happen to him in Jerusalem. And Peter said, far be it from you, Lord. That's not going to happen to you. No. And what did Jesus say? Oh, wow. What's the next time Peter told him no? When? Yes. And what was that? What was going on there? Where, where, where do you find that? Passover. John chapter 13. John chapter 13 to 17. Those five chapters, wonderful. It's the last Seder that Jesus is going to celebrate with his disciples. Read that. Study that before we have our Seder on Good Friday. 
Jesus was going to wash their feet. And Peter said, no, Lord, you're not washing my feet. And what did Jesus say? Then you'll have no part in me. If I don't wash your feet, you'll have no part in me. Whew. What does that mean? How do you understand that? Cleansing. Cleansing. If, you, if we don't allow the Holy Spirit to constantly be cleansing us, sanctifying us, cleaning us, this whole sanctification process where we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us from all of our iniquities. If we don't come to that place in humility, Lord, please correct me. Correct me, Lord. Correct me, Lord. I lay my life before you, Lord. Change me. Change me at the very core of my being, Lord. Change all these bad attitudes that I have, Lord. Those things that I find acceptable and you find detestable, Lord. Take them out of my life, Lord. Change me, please, Lord. I beg you, Lord. Change me. I'll do it. Yes. But if you don't have that attitude, what happens? Even at, Listen to me. Now listen closely. Even as a saved individual, when you reject that correction the Holy Spirit is trying to bring in your life, and he's the sanctifier, and it's his agenda, when you reject that correction he's trying to bring because of your pride, what happens to the Holy Spirit? What happens there? He withdraws. He's still there. Once saved, always and forever saved. Make no mistake about that. But when you refuse to cooperate with the work of the Holy Spirit in your sanctification, in your Christ-likeness, he will withdraw. He'll come back another day. And you know what he's going to point out? The very same area. Over until you finally surrender it. Right? So do it right away. Now, don't you think Peter... <laughs> Peter's like me, he's a knucklehead, you know? Here he says, no, Lord. How many times is he going to say no, Lord? Oh, how many Gentiles is Cornelius send? Three. One of his men and two servants. Three Gentiles are going to go to Peter at Caesarea. Interesting. How many times did Peter reject the Lord? Say, deny he even knew the man? Three times. Hmm. All very significant in Peter's life. There's a constant work that God is doing right up until the point where Peter ascends. Do you know there's a constant work that the Holy Spirit is doing in my life and in yours right up until the point to where we ascend? Henry, I remember visiting Cheryl that morning, and she's saying, the war's over. No more battles. No more battles. It's over. And what battles was she talking about? Those battles within. It's over. Oh, happy days. Can't you wait? I can't wait until one day that I am actually holy writ. Right? <laughs> Glorified. But in the process right now, it, it's an anguish, isn't it? There's still stuff he's got to work out in me. And, and the Lord does such a good job of bringing it out through you. Yeah. <laughs> No, I'm very thankful, very thankful. <laughs> Not so, Lord, for I have never eaten anything common or unclean. And a voice again spoke to him, saying a second time, what God has cleansed you must not call common. This was done three times, and the object was taken up into heaven. Three times this happened. Now I think Peter's pretty concerned at this point. Now... It's silent. Now the vision is gone. Now there's no voice from heaven. Now he's got to be left alone with his own thoughts, wondering, I said no to the Lord three times? Oh, this is not good. This is not good. <laughs> it's interesting. Whenever I ask anybody, and I see they have a certain skill set or a quality, 
a quality about them where they could really help us out or enhance the ministry here. And I asked them, would you please consider doing that? Well, I'll pray about it. You know what that usually is? No. <laughs> no. When the Lord tells you to do something, just, just do it. Just do it right away. Hmm? Now, while Peter wondered within himself what this vision which he had seen meant, what is this all about? Coincidentally, what happens? The three Gentiles from Caesarea show up at the door. And next week, we'll find out what Peter's reaction is and what happens. But for this morning's sake, for your meditation, there are several things I've given you and the Lord has given me to think about in my relationship to him. Do I always respond to his voice? Am I prideful or humble? Am I open to correction? And desiring, asking for that correction, what would you have me to do? Change me, Lord. Or do I think I have it all together? And it's the other person that needs to be changing. You hear that? Yeah. <laughs> oh, beloved. The sanctifying process that we're in, it's wonderful, isn't it? I am so thankful, though, when Paul begins to write on the work of the Holy Spirit, O wretched man that I am who will save me, he goes on and declares to us that whom he justified, he glorifies. He skips the whole justification, the whole sanctification process in Romans 8, you know. Those whom he justified, he will. Justification, not of you. Glorification, not of you. Sanctification, you've got to cooperate with the Holy Spirit. You can't say, no, Lord, not so, Lord. Far be it from... <laughs> No, now that, listen, that's, you, want, you, you want to talk about free will? That's where your free will comes in. How hilariously generous of a giver are you? And not just your money, your person, your life. Or are you trying to live paradise here? Trying to just carve away your little paradise here on earth and just glutton yourself on whatever pleasures or things or activities you want to engage in? Or you're really giving your life away for his sake? Each of us has to ask that question. Why? Why? Why is it so important? Because there's a record in heaven of my prayers, my giving, my deeds done in his name. And when I get there, I would like to hear him say, well done, good and faithful servant. Enter into the joy of your Lord. When you, hey, it's not too late. You're still here. I'm still here. It's not too late. We can change this this morning and really start to live our life for him and others. Not so self-centered, but being others-centered. That's a Christian life, isn't it? Yeah. Shall we stand? Thank you for listening to this message from Community Chapel of Greenville. For more information and to find more messages like this, please visit to www.ccgreenville.org. It is our desire to see our Lord high and lifted up, and to see His people grow in the knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ.